So Romans is where we are. The title of tonight's uh, deal is Made Right with God. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. What is righteousness? How are you made right with God? And then what does that look like? So the reason I'm saying made right with God, the emphasis really would be on the word God, not just right, because a lot of people think about justification or salvation. They think, well, I'm not as bad as the guy across the street. I hear him sometimes yelling at his wife so loudly, you know, I can hear him, and I'm, I don't do that to my wife, so I'm not as bad as him, so I must be good. No, 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 no. The comparison is not your neighbor across the street, doesn't matter how bad he is. Your comparison's not that. You don't have to be as holy as him. You have to be as holy as God is. Well, no one is that holy. That's the comparison. So that's why we titled that tonight for Romans. When we look at this topic and the, the title being Made Right with God. So on the back of your handout, there is a chart. And that helps as we walk through. If you want to glance back at that from time to time, I think that's going to help break up what we're going to cover. And then uh, we'll start, though, in the front of your handout. And we'll walk through an introduction. And there's fancy seminary terms that I think seminary professors, basically they're the scribes. When you read the Old Testament or the New Testament and the Gospels and it says he's talking to the scribes, those are basically like the seminary profs. And they're still around today and they love to use big words. And when they pray to open their chapel service, they love to go on and on. And it's a theological diatribe because I think they're trying to impress each other. And they use million-dollar words when, in essence, sometimes it's helpful just to boil it down. So I have to use these three words because they're so prominently used. We'll boil them down as we walk through, though, Romans. So the book of Romans explains in great detail the first two of these three terms that I put on your notes. It doesn't deal very much at all with the third one. Revelation's going to do that. Romans just references it few times, but doesn't really explain much about it. But it explains a tremendous amount about the first two. So the first term is justification. And that means that happens when Jesus' blood washes away all your sin, and he puts his righteousness into your account. So you're sinless, your sin's paid for at that point by his blood, and then his righteousness is placed into your account It's a declaration that God makes. He declares you righteous because of what Jesus did for you through his death on the cross. So if you look at John 16, it's going to say the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. To convict literally in the Greek means to win an argument. So that's the Holy Spirit's role in leading me to Christ in the first place. And he has to do that. I can't do it on my own. He comes to me and says, hey, you're in a mess. And he convicts, he wins the argument in my life about my sin. And he says, not only does your sin separate you from a perfect God, remember the holiness standard is him, not my neighbor, but you need what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't just some nice guy that taught good things. He died on the cross and you need that death to pay for your sin. Uh, And then if you look at uh, Romans 10, it talks about your, uh, we're not going to go there yet, but it talks about your... um, When the Holy Spirit does come to you and your response to that out of the mouth, you agree with what the Holy Spirit's saying. He leads you to repentance. uh, And then Romans 10 is going to deal with salvation itself. So the Holy Spirit is leading you to trust Jesus as your Savior. And so that's the first term, justification. So 
The second term is sanctification. And these first two is what Romans deals with. The third one doesn't deal with much. Sanctification is what happens as a result of your justification. God, through the Holy Spirit, growing you into the image of Christ and leading you to reflect God's image, God's glory, with more and more consistency as time goes on. So that's my sanctification. So if you could use different words, justification, you might say saved from sin, that concept. Sanctification, you might say that's my growth in Christ. That's my growth process where he's, and he promises to do this, he's conforming me more and more and more into the image of his son to look more like him so that I can be a better reflection of what he's like, his character, his personality, his attributes, his love, his message, all those things. So that's there. So justification, sanctification. Those are the two things that Paul in the book of Romans details almost ad nauseum. I mean, he explains both of those extremely well in a lot of details. He answers objections about them. We can't look at them all. He answers objections about them. He answers questions that someone might ask once he makes a point. He anticipates almost everything. And then the third one's glorification doesn't appear much. It's referenced, but it's not really explained in Romans. That's what happens to you when you experience physical death. Everything is made perfect. Uh, you, never, um, you never lose anyone again. At, at the resurrection, you're given, 1 Corinthians 15, you're given a perfect new body, and you're with God. So that'd be glorification. So everything's settled. I'm not in the presence of sin anymore. And uh, Adam and Eve, even in the garden, they were created perfect, but they weren't free from danger. Uh, Satan was allowed in there, and so they weren't free from this dangerous situation or from evil or for the influence of evil. And so in glorification, all that's locked away, and we don't have to deal with that anymore. And think about no disease. Think about no more illness. Think about no more aging to the point of death, that is. Think about, because uh, it's timeless, you know, Think about all your loved ones who knew Christ. You get to see them again. You get to be with them again. Think about, I'm free from the presence of sin itself. Satan and all his demons can't touch us anymore. So that's glorification, which is going to be awesome. I can't wait for that. So those are the three. Romans really just deals with the first two. When the Bible uses the word saved, you don't always know which of these three that it's talking about. The word sozo in the Greek. It can be referring to justification or sanctification or glorification and you really don't know what it's talking about in the particular passage you're in when it says saved until you check the context. Then the context is pretty, usually it's going to be very quickly, very clear. Okay, he's talking about justification or sanctification. So in his letter to the Romans, Paul addresses the first two. And he deals with those in chapters 1 through 8. So that's what chapters 1 through 8 is going to be. 1 through 8, Paul sets up an argument. He's going to say, look, here's what justification looks like. Here's what sanctification Forgiveness from sin and growth in Christ. This is what it looks like. Then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he addresses Israel and the gospel. And there is disagreement in the church, in the conservative Bible-believing church. Not people that just go off and leave scripture. I'm talking about conservative churches. There's disagreement in the church and the seminaries about the best way to interpret that particular section. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Particularly 9, but all three. And so we're going to look at that tonight. I can't dodge that. <laughs> uh, and then we'll have a time for a fist fight in the parking lot afterward. And Danny Jones is going to referee that. And then we're going to just move on and be fine. Uh, 
And then from chapter 12 on, the rest of the book, Paul addresses how you should live in response to what's happened in your life now that you're saved. Okay, now I'm saved. What should that look like? And he gives a lot of different things. He gives some specific instruction. Okay, here's what this looks like now that you're saved. So first, first section, one through eight, Paul addresses justification, sanctification. In other words, he addresses, look, here's how you're saved in Christ through his blood. It's the only way. And then he's going to say, and, and he's going to lace them together back and forth. And he's going to say, and here's how you grow once you're saved in that relationship that you have with Christ to look more and more like him. So, theme verse of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It's hard to pick a theme verse, but if I had to, if you twisted my arm, I would say 1, 16 and 17. He says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And historical order of God dealing with things, that's what you see. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, which he's going to do all throughout the letter, the just shall live by faith. So this deals with our fallen condition. I love verse 16. It deals with our fallen condition, which is to be ashamed of the good news about Christ. And we do struggle with that. That's not anything new. That's back then. That's why Paul puts these words in here. The Holy Spirit leading him to do that. I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's outward pressure all the time to not share it. To talk about anything else but. I mean, you'll be in a conversation with your friend and maybe the Holy Spirit's placing on your mind, hey, you need to nudge this person toward Christ or you need to ask them if you can pray for them or whatever it is. And you think, oh, you try to put it off And we don't always openly admit it to ourselves, but sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we feel shame. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but with Satan and his kingdom and his imps and his God and all the pressure he he exerts through culture, there is external pressure just to be quiet, to shut up about it. Don't share the gospel. You know, you can bring your personality to work, uh, in, in many areas, in many cultures, in many countries, you can bring your personality to work. You can bring your language, sometimes even bad language, to work. And a lot of times people won't have a problem with it. You can bring whatever to work. But when you bring Jesus to work and you start talking about him, sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. And a lot of times there's this pressure. You can even say God usually. And most people are fine with that. But when you specify Jesus, then you're talking about, okay, this is exclusive. The only way is through him to, to God then that's when people start to go, hey, hey, I don't know about that. And so there is outward pressure to do this. And there are guys throughout history, we're going to look at one in just a second, who had to stand up against that immense pressure not to share the gospel or to ignore it or to water it down or whatever. This passage, 116 and 17, also deals with the order of God electing Israel first and then wanting them, Israel, to broadcast his character to the world around them. They end up failing at this, and so Paul deals with that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, because he says, listen, if God made these promises to Israel, individually, many of them trusted Christ, but corporately, they rejected their own Messiah as a whole, although many individuals did come to Christ who were Jewish. As a, as a whole, they rejected their Messiah, and so what does that mean? Is God totally done with the Jews? Did, did his promises 
not last that he made them in the Old Testament and the first covenant. So people were really struggling with this during this time period. And Paul includes this in 19 and 11 and says, no, 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 no. His promises are not uh, void. So we'll look at that. Um, then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 when he says, look at verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed because it's written, the just will live by faith. So Martin Luther was a Catholic monk and he struggled with a burden of guilt that he never could get removed through participation in the sacraments. I mean, he went through the motions, this sacrament, that sacrament, that sacrament, went through all of them. And he just, even though he did that and he performed those things, he still felt this sin burden on him and he just couldn't get rid of it. And he struggled with it and he writes about it. It was an incredible weight on him. When he gets to verse 17, he's studying through Romans, and he sees this phrase, the just shall live by faith, it, it, a light bulb comes on. He finally understands that it's not about what he does, although that's important after you're saved. We'll look at that, that sanctification. That it's not about what he does for salvation, it's about what he believes. And his life after this realization from one verse, <laughs> Romans 1.17, is a large part of what sparks the Protestant Reformation, which, for example, corrects teaching that was going on that you could get your buddies, your buddy who died, you could get him into heaven if you give enough money to the Roman church to build their next building. Now, that is a brilliant building campaign strategy. Absolutely. But it's horrible theologically, and it leads people in the wrong direction by thinking that you can add anything to the blood of Jesus to accomplish your salvation. You can't add anything. The blood is the only thing that can pay for your sin, and the blood must be what pays for your sin if there's going to be any payment. Otherwise, uh, we're without hope. Uh, the question always comes up, what about the people who live, you know, in rural Africa who have never heard the gospel? How does God deal with them? Listen to what it says in chapter 1. 18 through 20, because I think what Paul says here is very insightful. Well, of course it is. He's being led by the Spirit. But look at 118. He says, look, he says, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hold it down. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God's shown it to them. Well, wait a second. How has God shown it to them? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. How are they clearly seen? Well, they're being understood by the things that are made. Oh, you're talking about creation? Yes, creation. Even his, and he's going to list two things, his eternal power and his Godhead or deity, the fact that he's God. So that they, and he's talking about everybody, so that they're without excuse. So every single person who lives on this earth, according to Paul, is born with a knowledge as they experience creation that we live in, that there is a creator. I mean, if you look at a sunset, you never see cows looking at each other going, man, look at that sunset. Isn't that amazing? You never see that. But we do. We recognize the beauty. You look at a sunset, and it's a live painting that changes every 30 seconds or one minute. You look at that, and you go, that is incredible. That doesn't just happen. You look at irreducible complexity, certain parts of your body that if they formed over a long period of time, one piece at a time, they wouldn't have functioned biologically. You would have died out. So you look at irreducible complexity like the human eye, 
the flagellar motor on a bacteria. You know, you look at that and you go, okay, that is an intricately designed, engineered thing, and you can't just do it one piece at a time, hodgepodge. And so I like to use the Mount Rushmore illustration. You know, if I have my atheist buddy who, um, and I take him to Mount Rushmore and we look at it, and I go, hey, Jimmy, isn't that amazing how over millions of years, the weather wore the rock in such a way, and maybe lightning struck it right there where that guy's nose is, in such a way that the rock looks like men, not just men, but people who were presidents. Isn't that uncanny, just the resemblance on that mountain face where it, the weather just made it like that over time? My atheist buddy would look at me and go, you're insane. Father and son designed it. They actually didn't finish it. They designed it. They carved it. They did it by hand. It, it had a plan. It had someone intricately work on it. Well, how can you look at that that's not even statistically, you know, that crazy or complex? How could you look at that and see a designer and then look at everything else and go, there's no designer? This is what Paul says. Everybody sees that. Everybody knows that. Um, there's no such thing, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, as a true atheist. They may call themselves atheists, but they've decided at some point in their lives to hold down, to push away the truth about God as creator. So God has put a tugging device into every single human being's mind, according to Paul in Romans 1, that he exists and two things about him. You see it in verse 20. That through his power and his deity, or Godhead, he created everything, including us, and he's wired that tugging device into creation itself. Now, creation does not, <clears throat> creation does not reveal everything about God. If it did, we could just worship creation. No, 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 no. But it does reveal particular things about God, at least two of them, according to Paul. He's God, and he's powerful, and he has to be to make all this stuff. Those two things come through very clearly in creation, even before you get to this. Just looking at creation, those two things come through very clearly. Now, there are two things, so that's knowledge. That's the knowledge God places in creation. Now, there are two things you can do with that knowledge. And Paul even references what some people do with it. You can push it away until you learn to ignore it, or even more scary, you can't even hear it anymore. Or, number two, you can respond to it and God will find a way to get the gospel message to you when that's the case. Look at Acts. We're not going to do jumping much to other books, but I do want to show you this. Look at Acts 8. Take a left. The next letter over. Look at Acts 8.26. Acts 8. 26 through 31. Now, when angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward south uh, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. He's in the middle of preaching a revival. People are getting saved left and right. And God says, Hey, leave. In the middle of a revival? Yeah, leave. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. When the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. 
and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So God ends up using Philip to stand on the roadside in the middle of the desert (laughs) to share the gospel with a guy who's going to have a scroll and happens to have it open to Isaiah 52 and 53, that section, and he's reading about this suffering servant who went through a terrible ordeal and didn't even fight back. And he goes, who is this? And he gets a chance to explain that he's Jesus. If God can get the gospel to an Ethiopian by pulling Philip out in the middle of a revival, telling him to stand in the middle of nowhere in the desert, then God can get the gospel to anybody who needs it. Not every attribute, like I said, or character trait is communicated, Romans 1, back there, through nature, but God's power is, and God's deity, the fact that he's God, that is. And everyone gets to experience that. God says in Jeremiah, he says, if you seek me, you will find me. God makes sure, if you seek him, that he will reveal himself to you. So I think that deals in a large degree with that question. Look at Romans 1, 21 through 27. Romans 1, 21 through 27. So the very next verse, so Paul says, look, they're, not, they're without excuse because they, they could see in creation a God who's powerful. Not everything about him, but at least those two things. And they held that down. They suppressed it. They pushed it away. They didn't want it. It's similar to what Jesus says to Nicodemus when he meets him secretly at night in John 3, when he says, this is the condemnation. The lights come into the world, and the men love darkness rather than light. They don't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. They, they want to hide and stay in darkness. That's why. Look at verse 21. Because although they knew God, Romans 1.21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were, nor were thankful. The only way to properly understand and experience the creation in which we live is to glorify God as God and not the creator and not the creation. If we get that mixed up and every false religion worships creation, not creator, if we get that mixed up, we're toast. But became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. Can you think of any contemporary illustrations? I mean, there are many. Professing to be wise, they, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God So you get a chance to worship the creator, and instead you're going to worship what he created? How crazy is that? That's what we do. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore God uh, also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. So yeah, he gave them up, and they wanted it, both. To dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You can only worship one or the other, by the way. Even if you worship yourself, you, that's the creation. And it makes a poor substitute for, the, for God. Who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. He's gonna use homosexuality as one illustration of that. For even their women exchange uh, the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And I don't want to get graphic here, but this sin he's describing is self-worship. I worship my own body parts, and that's what I want to experience with, with someone else. And so this is what it is. You're worshiping the creation and creatures and not the creator who designed it all. 
and it will leave you empty. There's no, there's no substitute for it. So everyone worships something. You'll either choose to worship the creator or his creation. If you choose to worship creation, you're obviously in for disappointment. The frustration and lack of fulfillment experienced as a result of worshiping the creation, so all the people, all the things around us, pick, pick one, is why industries like the entertainment and therapy industries are as large as they are. Nothing wrong with entertainment industry per se, inherently, but the reason they're as large as they are is you have people who refuse to worship the creator who are trying to fill that void that only he can fill by worshiping and pacifying themselves and satisfying themselves in their cravings with worshiping the creation. Well, then they can't do it, so then they consume more and more, and they're just looking to consume stuff. And you see industries like that just take off. Well, why? Well, not, it's not all evil, but in part, it's due to people's lack of being satisfied in their relationship with their creator. They've, they've already pushed that away, so what else are they left with? You know, go binge on Netflix. That's the only thing you have left. Uh, so, shame on you for, no, I'm just kidding. All right, for binging Netflix. Look at Romans 2, 14. We'll look at 2, 14 and 15. Paul mentions a specific gift in addition to creation that's given to somebody. We have it in salvation, but we have it even before we're saved. Look at 2.14. When the Gentiles who don't have the law, he's talking about the Old Testament law, the Jews have it, Gentiles didn't. When the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although they don't have the law, they're a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, there's God's moral code that even without the law, they, were, they already knew some of this stuff because they said, hey, look, this, you know, it, it makes sense. He wires it into his reality. They show the work written in their hearts. Well, what do you mean? Well, look, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or else excusing them. And so the conscience is a gift that God gives to us even before we're saved, we're born with it. That's designed to lead you to God's moral code. It can't lead you to salvation. It's not powerful enough to do that. The Holy Spirit has to do that. But it is a great gift that leads you to God's moral code. And it can't lead you to Christ, but it is still an amazing gift. Has anybody ever watched, what's the second Disney cartoon movie ever made? Does anybody know? The first one was Snow White. Well, Disney Studios did other side projects, but I'm talking about their big animated films. Mm-mm. Fantasia was like third or fourth. You're close. Not Cinderella. Pinocchio. Number two, Pinocchio. Who's the guy in Pinocchio that acts as Pinocchio's conscience? Jiminy Cricket. So he's tasked in the movie with being his conscience. The lesson is that an essential part of being human, if you go back and watch the movie, if you only watched it as a kid, you should watch it again as an adult. It's amazing. Back when Disney put good lessons like that in all their stuff. The lesson is that an essential part of being human is to be sensitive to your conscience. It even turns Pinocchio from being a wooden creature, if you watch it to the end, into a real boy. This is what being human looks like. There's a conscience and you need to listen to it because it's gonna guide you away from behavior that's really bad and toward uh, behavior that's good. And it's funny even when he goes to Pleasure Island with the boys and they're drinking and smoking, what does it turn you into? A donkey. You can use the other word, jackass. It turns you into a donkey or a jackass. 
And that's the point Walt Disney is making. He's saying, hey, if you carouse, to use an old term, if you carouse around like that, that's what you turn into. And Pinocchio gets halfway there. He grows a tail in the ears, but he doesn't turn all the way in. And that's, that's, it's fascinating. That's Walt Disney's point. He's portraying the ability of the conscience to steer you away from foolishness, not to Christ, but toward moral action. So the conscience is an amazing gift. So before Christ, it can help regulate some things if I don't sear it. It can help regulate my behavior, and it's a gift from God. After Christ, I still have the conscience, so now my job is to tune my conscience. Some areas it's going to be overly sensitive, some areas it's going to be overly dull, not sensitive enough about some different things. So my job as a Christian and my growth becomes, okay, how do I fine-tune my conscience and let God's Word and the Holy Spirit do that, guide it, and fine-tune it so that my conscience bothers me when it's supposed to, and when it's not supposed to, it, it doesn't because obviously it gets haywired sometimes. So look at Romans 3.23. Paul's going to go into justification and salvation. Romans 3, verse 23. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody. There's nobody that hasn't, that's not in that category, except for Jesus Christ. There's no human being who's not in that category. Uh, being justified... There's that word, justification. Being justified freely by his grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. He paid for it, but you don't. You didn't do anything to earn it. By his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Jesus, set forth as a propitiation. Uh, If you've studied Exodus and the mercy seat over the uh, Ark of the Covenant, that's what he's referring to, where the blood was sprinkled. The point is the blood's applied to pay for something. Whom God set forth as a payment of propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, Old Testament, right? And so they're saved through Christ just like we are. And then he says, verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified, there's that word again, by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So it's not obedience to the law that gets you there. It's grace through faith in Christ. So he says, look, you're justified by faith, not works. Works are an important part of your sanctification, that second word we looked at. But your justification, uh-uh. You're justified by faith in Christ through his, uh, by his grace. Then what about, we say, well, what about what James says in chapter 2 of James? James seems to say the exact opposite thing. Well, look at that real quickly. So people say, hey, and people... Some people will do this. They'll say, hey, you know, this isn't accurate. It contradicts itself all the time. And you say, my question is, okay, show me one. Usually they can't give you one, but sometimes they can if they've been doing their homework. So they'll bring you to James 2. And they'll say, look at James 2.19. James says the opposite of what Paul says. And even in verse 23, he quotes from the Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul's about to quote that same passage, and he seems to say the opposite that James says from quoting the same passage from the Old Testament. So what in the world is that all about? Look at James 2, 19 through 24. James says, look, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? Wait a second. I thought Paul just said you're justified by faith and not by works. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? Oh, okay, so it's a package deal. And by works, faith was made complete or perfect. And he says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That seems to be at odds with what Paul has just said. Well, so what's the deal? Well, Paul is dealing with justification, made righteous by Jesus' blood. And James is dealing with sanctification, your growth in Christ to be mature and look more like him. And Paul and James are both battling, but they're not battling each other. They're battling opposite ends of a spectrum. So you have Paul, he's battling a false teaching, and James is battling false teaching. And people seem to, when they glance at the two passages, that they're battling each other. No, 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 no. Their backs are together, and they're battling both out. Their backs are touching. They're fighting the same fight but they're, for the gospel, but they're fighting opposite ends of the spectrum. So their backs are together. Paul is battling against one extreme of legalism that says you're saved by your works. Paul's saying, no, you're not. Justified. That first term on your notes. Paul said, no, you're not. That's what Paul's fighting, battling against. And James is battling the other extreme of what we call today easy believism. Once you're saved, you can live however you want to. Do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. You have your hell insurance. You're good. Paul's fighting against legalism. James is fighting against easy believism. They're both battling, but they're not battling each other. Their backs are together, and they're fighting against these two extremes, both of which Satan tries to use to bring into the church to go, hey, you trusted Christ? Yeah. Baptized? Yeah. Um, been circumcised, right? Well, no. Well, you have to be circumcised. And did you go through Jewish law? No, I didn't grow up Jewish. I'm Gentile. Well, you have to do that first. That's the only way to Christ. And Paul comes in and says, no. And then James is battling this easy believism where people come and they go, hey, I'm saved. I checked that box. Now, hey, where's the next party? And James is going, no, 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 no. You're not saved for the party. You're saved for this. You're saved to serve Christ. And so they're both fighting, but their backs are together. So James's point is that they're, if there's justification, there will be sanctification. If there's true salvation in Christ of a person, there will be sanctification or growth at some point. It may not be as fast as the next guy, but it's going to be there. It may have blips <laughs> or pauses, <laughs> but it's going to be there. It may struggle with different things, but it's going to be there. If, uh, I always struggle with the funerals where they say, yeah, you know, my dad, my grandpa, whoever it is, my grandpa loved Jesus. He said he, he said he asked Jesus into his heart as a boy at a summer camp he went to, or church camp, revival he went to. But there's no fruit at all. And that's between him and God, ultimately. But there's no fruit at all. You, you kind of have to wonder. So I did my great uncle's funeral, uh, Wes Hobbs. He was, UDTs were before Navy SEALs. He trained UDTs. He did dive work, contract work for the CIA, explosives, dive. I mean, he did all kinds of stuff. Impressive career. But, uh, and I did his funeral a few weeks ago. And um, what I couldn't do, <clears throat> what I couldn't do was stand in front of my family and say, hey, it's going to be okay, we're going to see him again in heaven. Because, you know, he was saved, Rob Bell, Love Wins. 
If you haven't read that book, don't read it, but uh, go watch a review of it or something. You know, eventually everybody just gets saved because love wins. Um, I can't tell them that. So what I did was I, I took them to John. I took them to John 14. I said, look, Jesus makes an interesting statement in John 14. He says, when you die, if you're my child, and I define what that meant, his blood's purchased, paid for your sin. If you're my child, when you die, Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you, and I don't delegate coming to get you to an angel. I do it myself because it's personal to me. That's how much I care about you. <clears throat> That's all I could share because I can't promise them something that I don't know. And if I, were, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I don't know. anyway, I can't promise them that. Uh, he's in heaven when I didn't see any fruit. Now, if he made a confession right before he died and there was a chaplain that met with him several times, that very well could have happened, Absolutely. And absolutely, we'll get, to see, we'll get to see him again. But if there's no sanctification, if there's no fruit, if there's no evidence of salvation ever, <clears throat> then Scripture, Paul would say, there was no justification. And that's how you put what Paul says together with what James says. You can't say that you trust Jesus if it never shows up in your life. Uh, so, <clears throat> sorry, look at Romans 4, 1 through 5. Romans 4, 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Um, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag or boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. So he quotes the same verse James did. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God's righteousness was placed in Abraham's account. Verse four, now to him who works uh, for salvation, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you try to earn your salvation, the wages you're gonna earn is debt against salvation. You're not gonna earn salvation. You're earning debt. Negative, not positive. Verse five, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, he's talking about Jesus, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. So he, Paul says, look, Abraham was saved, not by what he did, but by what he believed. Same thing he says in chapter three. And this theme is Paul's banner in the book of Romans and really in all of Paul's letters. Well, then the natural response is, well, then, so who cares how I live after I'm saved? And Paul deals with that attitude by saying, no, that's going too far. Paul will say that you're not saved by good works, but that you're saved for good works, to do them, to serve Christ. In other words, good works can't save you, that first word, justification, but instead your salvation, your justification, will produce good works. It will result in sanctification. They're a package deal. They come together. Look at Romans 6.1. So he deals with this attitude. Hey, I have my fire insurance. I'm good. I can do whatever I want. Like if you bought life insurance and then you skydived and you didn't worry about checking your pack. He says, no, 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 no. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He just got finished saying, look, if you're in Christ, no matter how much you sin, God's grace covers, period. 
So then the next question from somebody might be, well, then I can do whatever I want. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, no, 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 no. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Um, Verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know, so he's correcting bad knowledge here, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So in your baptism, it's symbolically connecting you to his death. Well, what do you mean? Well, he says, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if So I'm stopping something and I'm starting something. Um, For if we have been unified together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, which refers to our sin nature, was crucified with him. What happens when something's crucified? It's killed. It's done. It's dead. Our old man, our sin nature that we had before Christ, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, broken, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's the intent of having this new nature and killing the old nature. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So Paul's saying that your sin nature, which is your tendency to sin that you will eventually always give in to. I don't care if you do it at two months old, 10 months old, 12 months old, or 12 years old. You're always gonna give in to it eventually. That sin nature that you have in Adam that you inherited at your physical birth through your father, hence the virgin birth with Jesus, not inheriting it, is crucified with Jesus the moment you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're given a new nature now in Christ. You don't have two natures. You have one nature, and you're given a new nature. This new nature, although it has the ability to say yes to sin, just like before in Adam and Eve in the garden, Which is why he writes, for example, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. There's the possibility that you would do that even in Christ. This new nature, although it still has the ability to say yes to sin just like it had before, now gives you an ability that you did not have before, and that's the ability to consistently and successfully say no to sin. That didn't have that before. That's the new nature through the Holy Spirit that God places in me once I'm saved is the ability to obey him and please him. You have one nature. Before Christ, you had one nature. That nature was fallen and bent away from God and not able to really please him. In Christ, Paul's saying that old nature is killed. You have one nature still. It's a new nature. And so the paradox becomes, and we do this, and Paul's gonna talk about it all through Romans. The paradox becomes, well, then why, if I'm given this new nature and this ability through the Holy Spirit to please God and obey God, why do I go back? That's been crucified. God's not reviving it. I'm the only one that's reviving it. Why do I walk back over to it? It's crucified. It's buried. And dig it back up and act like it's alive again. That's the most foolish thing that anybody would, but that's what we do. And that's what Paul is going to talk about a little bit in Romans, this struggle Uh, So the reason that you don't continue to live in sin and be okay with that once you're purchased by Christ's blood is because you now have a new nature. Why in the world would you try to go back and revive the old one and act like it still has dominion over you to control you when in fact it does not? (laughs) But that's the struggle. And he even talks about it in chapter seven. Look at chapter seven, verse 18 and 19. (laughs) 
7, 18, and 19. For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice. In other words, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing them. Now, some people think chapter 7 is Paul explaining his pre-salvation experience. And that's fine if you believe that. I don't because when you get to verse 14, the verb tenses in the Greek shift, and it comes through in the English too, and it's present tense, Paul's saying, I am presently doing this. I'm struggling with this. There are things I don't want to do I end up doing. There are things I don't want to, that I want to do that I don't do. And then look at uh, 7.22. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law or principle. Don't think Old Testament law. I see another principle or law in my members, my body parts, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my body parts. Oh, wretched man that I am. So look at how frustrated Paul is. Have you ever been this frustrated at, at your decision to try to revive your old sin nature? I mean, I have been. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> he calls this his body a body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how you look at 8.2. 8, well, what does that look like? Chapter 8, verse 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's where the freedom is. My new nature that I have once I'm justified, which is the Holy Spirit in me, gives me the ability and the desire, two things I didn't really have before, to obey and to please God. And it's an amazing thing. That's the method of deliverance. It's not just trying really hard not to do those bad things that keep tripping me up. It's submitting to the voice and the direction of the Holy Spirit and learning to be sensitive to his word that always is going to lead me in the right direction and agreeing with him, because he says it, it's true, agreeing with him and coming into agreement with what he says that I do through the Holy Spirit have the ability to say no to that. That's crucial. I can't just focus on the sin and go, okay, I'm going to try really hard tomorrow not to do that. It doesn't work. So how does Paul find victory in his battle against sin? Chapter 8, verse 2, he lets the Holy Spirit lead him, and only then does he have the, the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. By the way, that's what the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, that's why it's called fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Maybe you've memorized that. Those aren't the only nine, but that's a great list. That's why it's called fruit of the Spirit. Those character traits and abilities are not the way to the Spirit. They are the fruit of of the Spirit, meaning that they're the result of letting the Holy Spirit call the shots in your life. You don't focus on those by, the, by itself. You don't focus on those character traits and go, okay, I'll try really hard to do that. I'll try really hard to do that. No, that's getting the cart before the horse. I'm submitting to this Holy Spirit, and when I let him call the shots in my life, that's what it shows up as. That's what it looks like. That's the fruit or the result of it. That is how to stay on the path of freedom from bondage for the believer. God set me on this path toward him, and sometimes I have the tendency to fall off the path or stray, and that's how I stay on that path, is I let the Holy Spirit call my, the shots. If I do that, he's always going to lead me toward obedience to Christ. That's part of his job, is to do that. The same Spirit that leads you to, back to the very beginning of your notes, the same Holy Spirit that leads you to justification, and he has to, is the same spirit that leads you to, through sanctification. He doesn't, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit doesn't go, all right, buddy, good luck, pat on the back. 
you know, my job's done. I'm going to go back up there and take a nap now. He stays with you, and the same spirit leading you to justification leads you in your growth. It's the same process. It's not some different process. It's submitting to his voice. And that's God's chosen tool to lead you in your sanctification. But your growth in Christ won't be without suffering. And I think that's such a common truth that Paul even brings it up next. There will be times of suffering that are needed for your growth or sanctification. Look at 8.18 through 26. So chapter 8, verse 18 through 26. I consider, Paul says, he mentions suffering in 17, and then he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, it's going to be totally worth it. You just trust me. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation's waiting. Look at verse 21. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So this earth that we're on is, is, is going through a state of, creation's going through a state of decay. And it says, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together even until now. So creation is groaning for this recreation when we get a new earth, a new heavens, new earth, and and it doesn't decay again. So he says, look, yeah, suffering's common. Creation itself is groaning for the redemption, uh, the change that Christ is gonna bring. But look at that. Not only that, verse 23, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan. So creation's groaning, we're groaning. Eagerly, what are we groaning about? Well, we're suffering. That's the context. We're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We're given a new body. It doesn't, it doesn't experience decay. It won't have cancer. It won't get COVID. It won't die. It won't, nothing. Resurrection body is made perfect. And if it's like Jesus's, I don't know this, it can walk through walls because he walks through a wall, which is pretty cool when the guys are in the upper room. I don't know how he did that. He was in a physical body. Thomas touches it, but yet he walked through a wall. That's pretty awesome. Uh, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we don't know what we should pray for, verse 26, as we ought. But the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So what's the context in this passage? Suffering, groaning. And bringing that groaning to the Lord in prayer, that's crucial. And what Paul says here is absolutely amazing. When all you bring to God is the groaning that comes from your suffering and the pain from the suffering and groaning is so intense that you don't even know how to formulate your prayer. You don't even know how to pray. You're just bringing him your pain and your groaning. Then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, goes to the first person of the Trinity, the Father, in prayer on your behalf. That's awesome. I don't think verse 26, some people do, I don't think verse 26 is pointing to a private prayer language. I think it's God's response to your suffering when you decide to take that suffering to him. And that's the only reason verse 28 is made possible. A lot of people love to point to verse 28. And some people even memorize it. Romans 8, 28. How many people have that memorized? I mean, a lot of us do, or we memorized it in Awana. And it's good to memorize that verse, but understand all the stuff that comes before it. The only reason verse 28 is possible is because what I bring my groaning to God, the Holy Spirit steps in and goes to bat for me, so to speak, and prays on my behalf. And Paul just gets finished saying, look, who knows the will of a man but his spirit? 
that's in him. In other words, his point is the Holy Spirit knows the will of God. First John 5, if you pray the will of God, God's answer is yes. So if the Holy Spirit's praying for you, perfectly lines up with the will of God, what's the answer? Yes. Whatever content he's praying for you, because you don't know what to pray for, he does, is the answer is yes. So the Holy Spirit goes to bat for you, steps up, and look, verse 28 is only made possible because of that. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, not mine. So don't use Romans 8.28 like it's an automatic get out of jail free card. That's not the context it appears in. The context is, look, you're suffering. You bring your groaning to God in prayer, and you don't even know how to pray because the suffering's so intense. So the Holy Spirit then steps in for you and prays for you the perfect will of God. Then you get to verse 28. And because of what he does on your behalf, all things work together for good. You see the context there? So you have to bring your groaning to God in prayer and then trust his ability and his willingness to step in and pray on your behalf and then to bring in your life as a result from that prayer whatever is in your best interest. And you have to trust him to do that. It might not be what you wanted or whatever was on your list, but it's on his list. Your list doesn't matter. You need to figure out what his list is. And so he says, hey, he prays his perfect will. The answer is yes. What other God would do that for his people? I can't think of any where you're struggling. All the other gods, you have to pacify them somehow. They're kind of in a bad mood. And maybe if you pacify them enough, they'll do something for you. Our God is waiting to do something good for us. And we bring him pain. And it's so painful sometimes in the context of chapter 8. I don't even know what to ask because I'm in such pain. The Holy Spirit steps in for me. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. You have to trust God to do that. And honestly, how can we trust God with our eternity for salvation and then not trust him that his plan is best for our life? So that whatever we're going to bring him and ask him to do in our life, whatever he wants, How can we not trust him to do that? But yet we've trusted him with, (laughs) that's insane. Uh, But sometimes we do that. Then Paul addresses Israel in the gospel in chapters 9, 10, and 11. That's why I only left myself 10, 15 minutes for this part. No. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. So uh, this section, so go to Romans chapter 9. Uh, there's disagreement in the church about the best way to interpret this section of scripture. So I'm giving you my take. I'm just telling you that this is my take. And then I'm gonna tell you, don't believe it just because my take. You go to scripture and be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, and you figure out, okay, what's the best way to interpret this? I believe this section is about God creating his nation and choosing his seed, ultimately Jesus, according to the flesh and the physical things. I don't think that this section is about justification, that first thing we talked about. Some people believe it is. That's fine. But there are those who would disagree with me. That's okay. Um, some of them would fall under the term of being called Calvinist. If, if you know what that means, good. If you don't, that's okay. Just stick with me for the next few minutes. Um, I'm okay with it if you are as long as you're okay with the fact that I'm not, (laughs) quite frankly. Um, So chapter nine, so he says, look, verse three, 
I could wish that I myself were a curse for Christ for my brethren. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jews, my countrymen according to the flesh. He's going to pick it back up in 10.1, this idea. Look at verse 5 of chapter 9. From whom according to the flesh Christ came. Look at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, people were saying, wait a second. If God made all these promises to Israel and corporately, not all of them, but corporately as a whole, they rejected him, well, then his promises are broken. What's going on? No, he says, no, no, no. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he fleshes out what that means. Just because you're a Jewish descendant doesn't mean you're automatically getting in, that you're justified. You're justified through Christ. So, but look at what he immediately goes into. He's talking about birthing the Messiah. He's talking about bringing the Messiah onto the scene. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's the first inference he uses. He uses Isaac. Look, God picked Isaac, not Ishmael. And then he's going to use another inference, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So I chose Jacob, not Esau. Well, when you go back to the narrative, the stories for those two guys in the book of Genesis, go read the narrative. Don't take my word for it. Go read the narrative. What you find, you don't see God condemning you don't see any clear evidence one way or the other that Esau was, had faith in God or not. You don't see any clear, same thing with Ishmael. You, he's simply saying God didn't pick Ishmael and God didn't pick Esau. He picked Jacob and he picked Isaac to be the lineage to the Messiah. That was his choice. What's interesting is he's even highlighting this. Both parents of those kids wanted the first one, wanted Ishmael, wanted uh, Esau. And God, te- and God basically tells the parents, no, it's not them, it's this other. It's not who you think it would be. And God says, and guess what? I get to pick that. You don't. So that election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Verse 12, it was said to her, and here's the second example, the older shall serve the younger. Usually the older would get it, but no, in this case, the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. In comparison to the way I'm gonna treat Jacob and bless him, and specifically in this passage, Bring the Messiah through his lineage. In comparison to that, Esau, I hate him. In comparison to Jacob, when you look at that, I'm not going to bless him nearly as much. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God, his dealing with physical Israel and bringing his lineage through Israel? No, he gets to pick that. That's what he's going to go on and saying. And then he says, verse 17, third example is Pharaoh. He says, for the scripture says, to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up so that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, and this is the verse that uh, a lot of people wrestle with, and you do need to wrestle with it. Don't glaze over it and skip it and go, oh, well, I don't understand that. Let's just read the next verse. No, you do need to wrestle with it. What does this mean? Therefore, he has mercy, verse 18, on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. And you go, oh, so did Pharaoh have a choice in all this deal? Again, don't take my word for it. Go back and read the narrative. It's in Exodus. The plagues, the 10 plagues. What you'll find in the narrative is Pharaoh first hardens his own heart. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then I think it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Not sure who the agent was there. And then it goes into one plague, two plague, three plague, four. And then it goes into God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then immediately it goes back to Pharaoh hardened his own heart again. And then, here's what's scary, if this is true. And then the rest of the plagues, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Almost as if Pharaoh had made up his mind, I'm not going to follow him anyway. And he seared his conscience so badly to the point that he didn't even have a shot anymore. I mean, he was just totally lost. And at that point, the narrative just says, it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So those two things are playing together. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It's not one without the other. If you read the narrative, they're playing together. And it's important to do that. If the New Testament ever quotes the old, it's important to go back and read the story and say, okay, what's happening here? What's going on? Uh, And so chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says an interesting statement. If chapter 9 is about justification and God choosing some to be justified and choosing others not to be justified, then chapter, this is just my take. It's okay if we disagree. By the way, we differ on this on staff. Do we fight about it? No. Do we bicker about it? No. Do we have perfect unity? Yes. So if it's not an issue between us, it shouldn't be uh, between you. So look at, but you do need to know what you believe. But here's my take. Look at 10.1. If nine's about justification, then 10.1 makes absolutely no sense because Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Paul's burden for his countrymen, according to the flesh, the Jews, is that then he jumps back into salvation, is that they may be saved. Why in the world would he say that if he just finished a theological diatribe about some of them can't be? So that's my take. Um, uh, We'll go have a fist fight in the parking lot after, and I'll lose because I can't fight. So there you go. Um, Whatever you believe, base it on your study of God's word, not what someone else says. I want you to use your study Bible notes. I want you to use commentaries that are available to you. And and other teachers and pastors' thoughts, but use them as a supplement, not as a substitute to studying through God's word yourself. Do that first, and do that foremost. Um, I have a discipleship lesson with audio and PDF notes that covers this topic in more detail in my Dropbox. Um, It's one of the 25 weeks that I do, so if you want to study through that, let me know, and I can send those notes to you. Uh, It's a PDF and an audio file uh, to going through the notes. Okay, then... Fight's over. All right. Then in chapter 12 on, Paul addresses how you should live in response to what's happened in your life now that you're saved. And he gives a lot of instruction here. Look at 12.1. I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that's what he's going to go into. Look, now you're saved. Now here's what that should look like in your life. So he's going to cover different things. For example, in Romans 13, one of our favorite passages as Texans, in chapter 13, he's going to say, look, you need to submit to governing authorities. And here's their God-given role. And by the way, what's the context that Paul's saying that in? Who's the emperor? Nero. And he's telling people, he's going to tell them in Timothy to pray for him. And here he's going to say, submit to him. So he's saying, I want you to submit to and pray for a guy who's so bad that some of you, Two weeks from now, you're going to be arrested because you're a Christian and you're going to be put on a pole and dunked in oil and set on fire because he wanted to play games at night. There weren't electricity to light his night games. You're supposed to pray for that guy (laughs) who later might do this to you. So if we think, man, I really don't like our leader right now or, or whatever, you fill in the blank, or I do, or I didn't like the previous one or two before that or three before that or whatever, Paul's saying in Romans 13 in the context of Nero, this guy was horrible. (laughs) 
And so that brings an interesting concept to it. So again, it talks about the proper role of government. I also have a discipleship lesson if you want that resource with audio PDF notes about uh, pray, obey, disobey, or the three principles that we go over. Pray, obey, disobey regarding government and when to do what biblically. And so that's there if you want. Just ask me for that. Then, um, so, so that's it. And he goes through a lot of other instruction. Chapter 14, chapter 15. He wraps the book up in chapter 16. It's always interesting if you follow character studies to look at the closing of Paul's letters because he'll mention people. And if you track them throughout, you can get little bits and pieces of information and insight sometimes just from looking at those lists. So that's cool. We're not going to do that for time's sake tonight. So application. Number one, you've been justified if, if you've done that, if you've trusted Christ and asked him to pay for your sin. You've been justified when your sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus. If you've never asked him to do that, Come and talk with me as soon as we're done here, if you want to. Number two, you are being sanctified, growing more and more to look like Christ. Number three, you will be glorified. So you have been, if you're in Christ, you have been justified. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified. That's detailed in Revelation. It's not really mentioned in Romans. And then number four, I would say, when you use the basis of your forgiveness as a reason to allow yourself to sin, then you've completely misunderstood Romans. You've completely misunderstood the entire New Testament. Justification is not to create sin. It's to create sanctification. So God loves you. Uh, He died on the cross to pay for your sin. And he's given you the ability through the Holy Spirit he places inside you once the moment you're saved to obey his direction for you. And if I could sum up part of Romans, it would be saying something like that. If you want to look more into this, uh, two books that take either side of what we covered in 9, but they cover the whole book of Romans, not chapter 9. There's a great one, uh, John Phillips, that grabs one perspective. It's called Exploring Romans. He was on staff at Moody Bible Institute, and I like his commentary because it's short and simple and to the point, and he doesn't get lost in the weeds. And then there's another one if you want to see the, a different perspective, and I encourage you to. There's Romans by Baker Exegetical Commentary Series by a guy named Thomas Schreiner, and he's going to take the more Calvinistic approach, and he's really solid. And um, I would recommend, if you, want to, if you want both angles, grab this one and then grab something from somebody like Thomas Schreiner. He's a professor of New Testament at Southern. Uh, sharp, sharp guy. So uh, there are educated people on both sides of that debate and believers. And uh, so if we haven't solved that debate totally in the last 2,000 years, uh, we're not going to tonight. But there you go. I present you uh, courageously what I believe, but then to say, hey, uh, it's okay that we differ on some of those finer points. So any questions, I'm going to wrap us up and uh, pray us out. I think deacons will have to slip out anyway because you'll have a meeting soon. But you won't offend me if you need to do that. Anybody have any questions? Y'all go into your meeting and say, listen to what Will just said in the chapel. <laughs> Get me in trouble. Any questions? Anybody? Salvation. Hold on. Here's where we're in unity. Salvation is by Christ alone, through his blood alone, by his grace alone. That's the only way to salvation. 
And he was perfect and never sinned. He's fully God, fully man, virgin birth, all that. Resurrection, we're good. And he has to do the drawing. We also all agree on that. I can't come to him on my own and figure it all out on my own. Anybody have any questions? Or nobody's brave enough to ask? I was raised under that education and was a five-pointer. And now I've walked away from it. And what some people would say, you've gone liberal. But, <laughs> but yeah. Nope, totally okay that some of us are, though. That's not an issue I think needs to divide. There's doctrines that divide. That book y'all told me you were going through, Ben, I think he covers that as one of them. Uh, maybe it was Daniel Burgess that told me you were going through it in a study. And that doesn't need to be one that divides. And he, I, I think that he brings that up in his book, too. So, yeah, so independent Baptists are still arguing about King James, or not King James, <laughs> what translation that's the main fight, or one of the main. In Southern Baptist life, it's, it's this. It's this seminary president thinks this about Romans 9, and this seminary president thinks that, and, uh, you know, we have friendly banter back and forth, so it's good. All right. Yep, they're, they're both there, so I can't let go of either one. They're both held in tension, what appears to me to be tension. The misunderstanding, if there is any, it's on me. It's not, God's message is perfect. There's no confusion on his end. The confusion is on, if it is, it's on our end. But don't give up. Study to show yourself approved. Figure out what you believe about scripture and why. Don't just say, oh, this guy said that that way, so I'm gonna go jump on that. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Uh, Romans is such a rich book, (laughs) theologically about, how you lead us to yourself, and then once we trust you as our Savior, how you um, do a work in us that's incredible to make us look more and more like you. Uh, It talks about those first two in such great detail. I thank you for this book. I thank you that through your spirit, through writing through Paul, you uh, put this book and wrote it and gave it to us. Uh, It's an amazing gift. And as we seek to wrestle with it and understand what it's saying, Pray that your spirit would lead us in that as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love y'all. See you next week. We'll be in 1 Corinthians.